Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Election College, episode number 251. James A. Garfield, part two. Let's throw a political party. Face it, the political scene sucks, but did it always? It's time for election college, and class is in session. Now, your hosts, Jason Goff and Ben Smith. So Jason, we've walked through some of Garfield's life and man, it's been interesting thus far. And we're just at the point where if you haven't listened uh, to the past episode, you probably should, because we're going to talk about some of that in retrospect. Right after the point where uh, James Garfield gets a little bit of a promotion, uh, serving in the army there, he gets approached by some friends about running for Congress in the newly redrawn district the 19th district, which is uh, pretty heavily Republican there in Ohio. And at this point, he's kind of worried that he and maybe some other of the state appointed generals would get some more less renowned assignments. And, you know, military then was a lot different than it is now because like people knew generals names, they knew colonels names, they knew, they knew the higher ups names. And it was kind of almost like a celebrity status, like we would, you know, sometimes consider politicians. So he's thinking, if I get assigned to a more obscure area of the country and maybe don't see as much action, I may not have as much furtherance in my career. So I could go back into Congress and, well, or I could go to Congress and kind of pick back up on those politics I'm interested in. So, uh, you know, he's like considering the fact that he can continue to serve for a while while also if he wins, he could go. Uh, so he goes home on medical leave. He refuses to go out and campaign for the nomination. And um, on September, in September of 1862, he ends up getting uh, the nomination on the eighth ballot that was cast. So in that later in that year, in October, he defeats the opponent by a two to one margin and lands his seat in the 38th Congress. Yeah. And there he is. He's a congressional person elect. What do you call somebody who is just elected to congressman? Congressman elect? Congressman elect? Yeah. yeah. Sure. We'll say it with confidence. And that, sure. That's congressman elect, Garfield. Yeah. Congress. Yes. He uh, gets the orders to report to Edwin Stanton, you know, the war secretary. And they're going to talk about his military future. And while he's there in Washington, Garfield meets up with Salmon P. Chase, the Treasury Secretary, and he befriends Garfield thinking, hey, this guy's from Ohio, like me, and he's kind of a junior version of myself, I see him as, and they both agreed politically, they both were part of the radical wing of the Republicans, and he takes a seat in December of 1863, 
And Garfield is frustrated that Lincoln seems a little hesitant to push the South hard on, you know, slavery and the like, and the whole reason the war is going on. Many of the radical Republicans led by, you know, we have not done an episode on Thaddeus Stevens. We should do that. We've mentioned him a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So Thaddeus Stevens is leading the radicals and he wants the Confederate owned lands to be confiscated. But Lincoln says, no, I'm not going to do that. Garfield says, you know what? I support legislation that will really punish the South. He threatens that Lincoln might be thrown out of office for resisting these bills that are harsh on the South. So Garfield says, you know what, Lincoln, he is a second-rate Illinois lawyer. So Garfield, all the while, he's supportive of the Emancipation Proclamation. He thinks that's all well and good. But he views Lincoln as somebody who's not going to be hard enough on the South. And as somebody who is a little more tolerant, we'll just say that politically correct statement, (laughs) a little more tolerant about the institution of slavery. See, Garfield not only favored the abolition of slavery, but he said that the leaders of the rebellion had forfeited their constitutional rights. So we need to confiscate Southern plantations. We need to do everything we can to destroy slavery completely. And he thought that Congress was obliged to, quote, determine what legislation is necessary to secure equal justice to all loyal persons without regard to color. Yeah, and he does initially have a lot of resistance to Lincoln, or not resistance, but just kind of wishing he would do more. Uh, But he becomes more supportive of him when he does start taking action against slavery. So a few years later, Garfield takes up uh, the practice of law again in 1865 because he's hoping to make some money. And, you know, that's important. So he goes to Wall Street to uh, to work on that. And Lincoln is assassinated. And for whatever reason, there's this riotous crowd that gets all in an uproar around him. And he kind of jumps into an impromptu speech to calm them down and says, quote, fellow citizens, clouds and darkness are around about him. His pavilion is dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. Justice and judgment are the establishment of his throne. Mercy and truth shall go before his face, fellow citizens. God reigns and the government at Washington still lives. So, end quote. Uh, But he doesn't really talk about Lincoln, which is kind of strange because he just was assassinated the day before. And there's a lot of stuff he doesn't say in there, you know, about how the government is going to work and how the South, you know, anything he thought about the South in general. There's a lot of things he did say that are kind of like out of place a little bit. And, well, it's just kind of strange. Um, There was a biographer that uh, did a biography on Garfield, and he says, quote, it's quite as significant for what it didn't contain as for what it did. And, um, you know, in the in the years to come, of course, everybody loves Lincoln and Garfield loves Lincoln and uh, calls him a great man and things like that. Uh, but it was kind of kind of just a strange, <laughs> strange interaction where Lincoln's assassinated. He, for some reason, has a mob around him, gives a speech and it doesn't even mention Lincoln. Yeah. You look back on this era and think about what Lincoln 
thought about African Americans. He was very much of the standpoint that African Americans could go back to Africa and colonize that continent. And Garfield agreed with him on that standpoint, but Garfield was much more outspoken and saying, yes, African Americans should be able to vote. And they are they should have all of the rights that other citizens should have. So now Lincoln is gone and you've got Johnson, President Johnson, in the White House. And Garfield is there in Congress and they are butting heads all of the time. Garfield is seen as being the staunch radical Republican. And it's interesting when Johnson becomes president. So back in Congress in 1866, Garfield opposes the talk of impeaching President Johnson. He's absent on the day where the House it convenes to impeach Johnson, but he aligns himself with Thaddeus Stevens and he is acquitted, as we know, in the Senate. Garfield was very surprised about this. And he blames his once mentor friend, Salmon B. Chase. And by the time Grant becomes president in 1869, Garfield kind of moves away from these radical Republicans. He, um, he was very supportive of the 15th Amendment. Uh, he said that um, readmitting Georgia to the Union was uh, a good thing. He opposes the passage of the Ku Klux Klan Act, saying that he's very perplexed by that. Yeah. He calls them terrorists. So we move through, and Garfield is a pretty big supporter of the gold standard, and there's a lot of stuff that happens with that. And he is not terribly excited about President Grant being reelected, uh, at least at first. And then Horace Greeley comes out, and he's like, yeah, 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 get Grant back. We got to have Grant. <laughs> we don't want Horace Greeley. And then uh, there's the credit mobilier scandal, which was Garfield involved in that? Was he not? Was he to blame? No one knows. Uh, or maybe someone does. But if you want to hear more about that, you can go back and listen to our episode on the uh, the credit mobilier scandal as well. Uh, we move into the Hayes administration and Garfield ends up being the minority leader and, you know, having to rally the, the minority party and uh, try to get them to be effective in Congress. And of course, you know, there's times when that works and times when it doesn't. But during this time is when he purchases the property in Mentor that was then later called Lawnfield. And this is the place where he essentially um, conducted his first front porch campaign for the presidency. And we'll talk about that a little more here in a second. But uh, Hayes was actually the one that suggests Garfield run for governor in 1879. And he says, you know, that's kind of the next step for you if you want to end up in the White House. And Garfield's like, no, I think I'll try to do it as a senator. And so he devotes a lot of his efforts in, uh, in that direction. And Garfield gets elected to the Senate by the General Assembly uh, in 1880, although he didn't actually uh, begin the, uh, the office until 1881. So he goes back, he does some more um, work in his legal career. Uh, he really 
is kind of getting antsy. He doesn't really love public services as much as he once did, but he's still very much interested um, as long as it suits his interest along with, uh, you know, being a, an attorney and studying law. It gets really interesting because Garfield gets elected as much as you would be elected to the Senate in this era because the state legislature is going to determine who gets the Senate seat from Ohio and or one of the Senate seats from Ohio. So the legislature says, Garfield, you are our guy. You are going to be our next senator. Garfield's cool with that. They go to the Republican National Convention. James Garfield rises to nominate his friend, John Sherman, who was the senator from Ohio. And he is speaking Sherman's praises. And people decide that they're going to vote for U.S. Grant. Yeah, you remember him, the general. He's back for another round, kind of reluctantly, but there he is. And John Sherman doesn't vote too well in the votes. And they're voting and they're voting. You know how it goes, right? Nobody is winning decisively. So after 35 ballots, Garfield is really rising to the ranks of a competitor in this race that he doesn't necessarily want to go after. He doesn't want the Republican nomination. Well, in the next round of voting, nearly all of the Sherman and Blaine delegates shift their support to Garfield. He gets 399 votes. He gets the Republican nomination for president. You have, so just to put this into perspective, you have this member of the House of Representatives. He's not very big on the national stage when you consider some of these other people who now are kind of obscure in the annals of history. But he is about to be the next senator from Ohio. But no, he gets the Republican National Convention's vote to become president. And what do you do when you are an Ohioan and you run for president in the late 1800s? You sit on your porch. And that's exactly what Garfield does. Garfield goes back home after the convention and he runs his campaign from his porch and he's running against Winfield Scott Hancock, who was the Democratic nominee from Pennsylvania. So there's lots of tactics employed during the election cycle, the campaigning cycle. But in the end, there are about 9.2 million votes cast in the election and only a little less than 2,000 votes separates the two candidates. Uh, so it's a pretty tight race as far as the popular vote. In the Electoral College, uh, Garfield wins pretty easily, 214 to 155, and becomes the next president of the United States. And in 1881, he is um, going to be inaugurated. But before that, he starts kind of putting together a cabinet that is going to really um, establish peace in, well, politics, which is pretty much impossible. But because there's such a divide, he wants to make sure that, um, you know, there's going to be some some points of agreement there. 
Yeah, keep in mind the Republicans are severely divided. Yep. And even his vice president, uh, Chester Arthur, you know, he's got significant disagreements with him. It's going to be very interesting to talk about Arthur. He's actually one of my favorite unknown presidents to talk about. But Garfield represents that wing of the Republican Party that is not going to be bought. And there are plenty of Republicans who are against that concept. So when it comes to putting your cabinet together, you've got to get a mishmash of all of these different factions together. That's exactly what he does. Garfield is all about getting rid of corruption. He's all about improving uh, the requirements for getting people into positions, rather it being a, a good old boy system or the spoil system. Garfield is very much a merit-based guy. And this upsets a lot of people. And not everyone who is on the inside likes the concept of civil service uh, reform. And what ends up happening is you got this guy named Charles Guiteau. And Guiteau is roaming about in Washington. And Ben, I can't believe this, but it's true. This guy would roam the halls of the White House. He would roam the halls of the State Department. He was everywhere in Washington. And he was one of those members of the Republican. Yeah, so Guiteau... Well, he is, needless to say, a little bit disgruntled, and he's also kind of uh, politically motivated for an office, potentially in some some time, shape or form, whatever you want to call it. And he shoots Garfield. They're at the Baltimore and Potomac Railroad Station in Washington, D.C. on July 2nd, 1881. And... Garfield gets, um, after he gets shot, he goes into 11 weeks of intensive care and dies in New Jersey. So he becomes the second president to be assassinated. Uh, of course, Abraham Lincoln, just a few short years before. And Guiteau is kind of a, well, he's a crazy man. We've already discussed that a little bit. But in 1880, he had tried to get into office and expected that he would be able to get in because the Republican ticket was going to win and he was going to win. And he really did not like Garfield. And he kept trying to put forth these articles he had written and they would sometimes go somewhere and sometimes not. But a lot of times people wouldn't really let him speak that much because the Republicans were like, you're not terribly well known. We don't really want you. So don't worry about it. One time he was allowed to speak, uh, but he was so nervous that he wasn't able to finish his speech. So it kind of, you know, he had a little more confidence in himself than he should have, perhaps. Then it's kind of crazy about Gato. I saw, and this is all over the internet, <laughs> his brain uh -huh. is in a jar yeah. in a museum in Philadelphia. Gato is. Because they were like, <laughs> this is a madman. And there there it sits. Wow. They call so it Charlie. We, yeah. Garfield actually would see a lot of these kinds of folks. And we know that he saw Guiteau at least one time. And 
people like to talk to elected officials and especially the president. But like you said, Jason, he would just like roam around and always try to be around and confront people. You wonder how many other times he had intended on assassinating Garfield and been unsuccessful or didn't run into him or whatever the case was. They say that the gun that he used, like he purchased that thinking I'm going to purchase a nice looking ones because it's going to be in a museum someday. So you can tell that that's definitely the, the mind of a madman. Yeah. It's also interesting because we know that like after Lincoln, there was more, uh, there was more guards around the president and, you know, that's where the, the secret service comes from and things like that. But, you know, a few years after this, well, okay. Lincoln just got assassinated because of the civil war and the president is just, you know, he's important, but probably doesn't need to be guarded. And so like they would, publicized where he was going to be, when he was going to be there, what he was going to be doing. And uh, that's how Gateau knew where to find him and where he'd be going and things like that. So he takes, he goes and hides in the ladies waiting room uh, at that railroad and pops out and shoots him. Yeah. I guess there was what, two shots um, that strike Garfield. Um, One glanced off his arm and the other went through his back and shatters a rib. And he's like, my God, what is this? And Gatu was like, I did it. I will go to jail for it. I'm a stalwart and Arthur will be president. Yeah. So he thought he was doing the country a favor. And he thought that he would be celebrated because of this assassination. And um, tragically, Robert Todd Lincoln was there. So, uh, yeah. Uh, they take Garfield up to a private office and uh, some doctors examine him uh, with their dirty fingers. And yeah, he gets infection. And have you seen some of the comparisons, Ben, between like Reagan's assassination attempt? Yeah. And Garfield, like Garfield's injuries were almost there. I, I don't think superficial is the right word but so much less severe than what Reagan had endured. But because you got these doctors sticking their fingers in him and probing around, um, he's left to linger for like 80 days. Yeah, it's kind of insane. And uh, Joseph Lister, I mean, he'd been working on antiseptics and things like that. He had even come to the United States a few years before that. You know, he's he had created what would have potentially saved Garfield and so many other people during this time. Uh, but so many doctors were like, germs, those aren't real. And we don't we don't know what you're talking about. And, you know, it's it's not as if they were just denying science. It's that the science wasn't there yet. So they didn't really think that they should treat an infection. And no one who was really kind of a, a follower of Lister was there. So, yeah, um, probably a lot of the issues Garfield had from those um, injuries were due to infection. And so you have it, you have the second president who was assassinated while in office and Garfield kind of gets, he's forgotten about in the annals of history. This is the second time (laughs) I've said annals of history. I don't know if you're going to edit out both of those, Ben, but um, a lot of people forget that James Garfield was president which I think it's kind of ironic because we had him on an ugly Christmas sweater t-shirt this year 
and it was one of our best sellers. So there are some fans of James Garfield out there. It's I think it's really interesting too, Jason, that we think of you know when someone gets assassinated, they they just die, which is you know oftentimes the case. James Garfield was shot and worked on and in office still for like 11 weeks afterwards. He even had a cabinet meeting and signed some paperwork at one point. So it was a long, painful process from the time he was shot to the time he passed away, which is just you know crazy to think about how that happened. And you would imagine now if someone lived 11 weeks after a bullet wound, they were going to survive. But then it was still kind of day to day. Horrible, horrible to think about. So his body is permanently interred uh, in a mausoleum in Cleveland at Lakeview Cemetery. And uh, there were a lot of other, you know, dignitaries at his, uh, the the dedication of that mausoleum. Uh, there were, he was, of course, paraded around the country and everything like that uh, ahead of that. But you can still go and see that mausoleum there at the cemetery. Yeah, and like I said at the beginning of the last episode, there is a James Garfield National Historic Site, which I have heard is a delightful place to go. I plan on going there someday, but it's hard to get people from Cincinnati and Pittsburgh to visit Cleveland. It's just one of those things, but it will happen one of these days. Definitely. Hey, you know what else will happen? You're going to be punished if you haven't left us a review yet. That's right. One of these days, somehow... We're going to find a way to, to get you if you don't leave us a review. So you better leave us a review. Uh, <laughs> go over to iTunes. Leave us a brief review, uh, hopefully a five-star rating. And we would really appreciate that. And let other people know what a great show we have. And while we're manipulating and intimidating you, you can go ahead and interact with us on social media, which I'm sure you're going to want to do after that. <laughs> you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Election College. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you next time. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.